0: Hello and welcome again to your favorite storytelling podcast, Tales from a Cult Insider. I again am your host, chief storyteller and happy ice cream eater, Jared Garrett. I was born and raised in the Process Church of the Second Coming, which was one of the more infamous cults in the UK and the USA. That cult morphed over the years into Best Friends Animal Sanctuary with a few interesting stop-offs along the way. And I'm here to tell you all about growing up in this kind of strange, secretive, religious commune. As always, any questions you ask will be answered, so don't hesitate to ask. You can contact me at jared at jaredgarrett.com with your questions. Hey, and maybe your questions and their answers will even be featured on the podcast. Today, let's talk about some interesting tidbits, rituals, and such that were part of my growing up in this interesting and not necessarily great cult. So we're going to start with kind of my younger memories, and then we'll we'll talk a little bit about how it morphed over time uh, as I grew up, and then how it was even after I left. I was able to get out at age 17. That'll be its own story, possibly one or two different episodes. This episode, as usual, will be 30 minutes or less. All right. So we'll start off with actually one of my very earliest memories. It starts the night before a regular Sunday, kind of ritualistic type celebration. I was three and a half, maybe almost four years old. We were in New York City, as I mentioned in a previous podcast. In New York City, the kids who were all being born and raised, or even, or sometimes dragged into the uh, the cult, uh, we. We were all basically consigned to a giant room together. I don't remember how we spent our days, but it was not necessarily under very watchful eyes considering some of the shenanigans that we uh, got involved in, including boxing matches, which I mentioned in episode one. So it's late at night. I'm, I'm asleep. Nighttime basically consisted of uh, everybody go to bed and brush your teeth, please. And me brushing my teeth diligently then, I struggle to do it diligently today because I'm bored with it, but that's too much about me. We uh, would brush our teeth, imagine six or seven young children, ages three up to possibly ten, clustered into a bathroom trying to get their teeth brushed and making a real uh, hullabaloo about it. Um, But we'd brush our teeth, you know, and then we'd go to bed, Uh, usually there were some PJs involved. And uh, again, beds were sleeping bags or a couple of blankets, and we would basically just sleep in whatever space we could find in that room. We did end up kind of with standard spaces, so our stuff would just stay where it was, but that that was our bedroom uh, for several years. Um, nighttime, after going getting ready for bed, we would do this uh, event meeting prayer circle thing. It wasn't... Sunday Sunday services were called celebrations. The evening thing was just uh, songs and prayers and scriptures, and so uh, we would sing hymns um, or chants, depending on you know what uh, leader of the of the particular circle wanted to do. Uh, the kids would typically do it their on their own with uh, with an, a couple of adults participating because there were just so many of us. Uh, but yeah, we, there would be songs. Uh, one of the most One of the songs I remember the most, uh, just because it was one that uh, was quite popular through all the adults that were caretakers of kids throughout my whole childhood and teenage years, was called Contact. And it goes like this. I'm going to sing for you now. Contact reaching to the stars through the spirit of the night. Knowledge, power, and unity. He is the way to life. And we'd sing that two or three times. I may have gotten a word or two wrong, but that's pretty much that. Um, we, there were some regular Anglican slash Protestant songs thrown in there. But mostly these were written by remarkably talented members of the cult. So we'd sing a chant, sing, sing that chant or a hymn we would, uh, there'd be a prayer. Uh, typically the prayer, I don't remember the words there, but I remember that they were long, man, really long and fairly boring, actually. Uh, and uh, and so then there would usually be like some sort of thing from the New Testament uh, and often from the Old Testament. The Old Testament was not overlooked by this group. They kind of liked the fire and fury of Jehovah from the Old Testament. So, then we went to bed. So off I'm in bed. I'm 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 asleep, and I'm roused one night by somebody poking my side, and I and I sit up and look around, and I see in the dimness of this giant room some kid with giant teeth grinning at me. He's sitting, uh, you know, just sitting on on the floor, legs crossed. And he's smiling at me and wearing pajamas that actually had horses and jockeys on them. And I was instantly jealous because I loved horses. And uh, he said, hi, I'm Mark. And I said, hi, I'm Jared. Who are you? And he said, I just told you I'm Mark. And that was the meeting of one of the people I was going to grow up with, essentially. He would be a part of my life for uh, another 15 years or so, 14 years or so. I mean, we're still friends. We're not close because we've just kind of grown apart. Uh, he ended up staying with the cult and the best in, in the animal society. But, um, yeah, he was Mark. He had just moved there from Canada with his mom. Uh, and um, her name was Lucinda. She later changed her name, I think, to Vivian. Um, and he was there to stay because, hey, that was the kids' center. And this his mom was going to be participating in fundraising efforts. And uh, that was basically that. Uh, We chatted for a couple of minutes, and basically I guess we decided we were best friends. And honestly, he was one of my better friends growing up. He was also a mortal enemy at times, because that's how things work when you have siblings. He was basically a sibling. Uh, But he's the one I spent probably the most time with hanging out, um, getting into all kinds of terrible trouble, uh, vandalizing things as teenagers, and other things. I was often astonished by what he was willing to try to do, just to uh, kind of express himself. Uh, So that was that night. He ended up, uh, I think, crashing next to me um, for the night. We slept, uh, again, three, four years old. And then the next morning, he wanted to introduce me to his mother. Great. So he did. um, Blonde, very nice, sweet lady. Very, very sweet, uh, soft-spoken lady. And he introduced me right before the morning prayer and song thing. And then, uh, that was Sunday. And so in the middle of the Sunday, we also had a Sunday celebration, which was a forever thing. This happened all the time. Every Sunday for my whole life, we did the Sunday celebration. The Sunday celebration consisted of, uh, starting with a song or two. Uh, there were also some prayers and stuff here and there. Uh, several speakers would say things of important, you know, guidance and, Uh, scriptural type things Um, but that kind of came later during the Sunday celebrations at this time mostly they were candle lit uh, and candle smoke filled rituals of um, kind of preaching of odd things around like Jesus Christ being um, Lucifer's brother or the same person as Lucifer but being kind of a flip side um, things about uh, how you know the world the, the the kind of the world itself out there was fallen and broken and trying to ruin humanity how we were not living up to what we were supposed to by our divine creators and benefactors um, how uh, when we got reincarnated apparently reincarnation was a thing uh, we'd have to pay for doing terrible things uh, and there was always a lot of singing I mean this was I mean, goodness, this was the mid-70s, mid to late 70s, and um, these folks were former hippies, right? So much singing, lots of long hair on dudes and ladies, uh, very heavy-duty black and crimson cloaks, and uh, heavy-duty chains with kind of a pendant of an iron cross, which was kind of funky looking. It's on the logo for the podcast. And everybody would hold hands and sway and sing songs. I learned to sing uh, Sweet Chariot there uh, while holding hands with a bunch of adults and kids. I was always very uncomfortable holding other people's hands. I didn't want to have that kind of physical contact with people I didn't know very well or like. And I didn't know any of those adults. I, I actually don't remember any of the adults from that time, except for as people taller than me who were trying to run my life, essentially. That's it. I don't remember anybody specific whatsoever, except for that flash of Mark's mom so they just were always kind of an other a group aside uh doing their own thing but this sunday and other sundays uh the ritual again singing and exhortations and preaching of their odd doctrine hey any doctrine could be odd i suppose from whatever depending on your perspective and then bringing new adherents into the cult which was always interesting and it also morphed over the years too uh it's sometimes that in general, though, it was if somebody was meant to or intended to join up, they would say, does is there anyone who would like to join? And then some plant in the crowd would say, there is one or often it was a woman. There is one. And that person, the new person would then come up. They'd be probably wearing some sort of robe uh, in this case, in most cases that I saw kind of a whiter robe. And they would go up to the leader of the, of the cult, in this case, in, on this Sunday in New York, or the leader of the branch uh, that they were joining up to. Um, and the leader of that particular group or that ceremony would dip their finger in a bowl of oil, presumably olive oil, could have been canola, don't know, and anoint this person on their forehead. Uh, and I think even on a hand, but I'm not sure, usually the forehead at least, They would run their finger through the flame of a large candle, uh, get a little soot and mark them with that as well and then they would put their hands on that person's forehead and say things and then push them. Um, Not push them hard, not like those um, the the, the very uh, enthusiastic kind of Baptists and Revivalists. Just kind of push them off and they would sometimes fall uh, overcome with whatever they were feeling and people were always there to catch. And um, That was that. There was also incense during these things, not like the waving braziers of incense or anything like that. Just a pot or a bowl of incense. And, uh, you know, that was basically it. So that was a Sunday ritual. Sometimes during Sunday ritual, um, as we went along, you know, there would be opportunities for other people to come up and perform something or to play something. So you'd get a musical number by some very good guitarist or pianist. Uh, somebody would read a poem or uh, some passages from some scripture, from, verse, from some truth-telling type book. Um, and that was kind of fairly harmless stuff. Uh, very strong smells. I can, as I talk about it, I can smell the candle wax and I can smell the incense. And I can smell the people, honestly. And I have a sense of crowding from uh, waists and legs from that particular kind of day in New York. Um, and, uh, day-to-day ritual type things at that time of life, it was all about, you know, saying God bless you to the adults, having God bless you be said back to you, um, uh, making sure that you were always really deferential and respectful towards adults. You would call them by their first names and, uh, the names of the people are an interesting thing and that is also informed informs my life. They would take upon themselves names either from the Bible or from some mythology. My mom was born Catherine. That was her, her name given by her parents. But when she joined the cult, the, which was called the Process at the time, she changed her name to Serafina, which is a beautiful name. I think it's a great choice. And I never knew that, though. I mean, honestly, I, I had no clue about that. From a very, as soon as I knew, can remember, I was calling her Magdalene. And she had actually taken upon herself just a completely different new name, uh, last name as well, St. Clair, don't know why. But I called her Magdalene. I didn't call her mom or mother. I didn't see her as my mom or mother. I saw her as this woman named Magdalene who had given birth to me, and so we chatted sometimes. Um, I only found out that she had had the name Seraphine or Seraphina, I think it was, Uh, boy, let's see, it's 2018, in 2010, or 2011 actually. Because I, I reconnected with, well, I connected for the first time with some people who had been in the cult years and years ago and then had left. And this is actually a lot uh, enabled by Facebook. Uh, yes, I'm a part of several private, completely secret groups uh, in which I get have conversations with former members of this cult uh, from back in the early, early, early days. And also people from the modern day and the kids. We also have a group. But we don't talk much. We all have our lives. That's how it works, right, guys? So, um, yeah, ma- names were a thing. My mother was Seraphine. Didn't know that. Magdalene, is, as far as I knew, her whole life, despite having been born Catherine. Um, there were, you got Johns, Peters, Gabriels, uh, Pauls. You know, these sound a lot like biblical names. Absolutely. Um, interestingly, Marianne de Grimston, mentioned in the first podcast, a season or episode, she... Never changed her name. That was her name, period. Um, Apparently, she was exempt from any name-changing or needing to, you know, change her life by taking upon herself some biblical name. Uh, I don't know if there was ever a a ritual for name-changing, but as far as I I know, there was not. People would just decide that their name was different, and they stuck with it, and the group would usually honor it. Uh, I believe sometimes, early on, names were not chosen necessarily solo by those taking the names— but that Marianne and or Robert uh, and later, you know, senior members of the cult would help select or even mandate the name. Uh, when I was born, I was born in Chicago. Um, <clears throat> my very first birth certificate uh, just has a, a plain vanilla name, John Doe, essentially. Um, and then I was given the name Nathan, guys. That was my, the first time. I, the first first name I was given was Nathan. But apparently I only got to keep that name for a year. Because another dude, Francis, who was one of the senior leaders of um, Best Friends, he decided to take, his name, take the name Nathan. And so I, I believe that, that he was senior to my mother. And I don't know that she ever defied anything or even considered defying anything the founders ever said. She was sweet, my mom. A kind, dear lady uh, who was completely and utterly devoted to this group. And I don't know why, I don't. maybe after this life and the next one, I'll understand her better. Uh, I'd like to understand her more in my life today. But yep, apparently that was that. I had to have a different name, so she gave me the name Jared. And that one stuck. Uh, my last name was not Garrett back then. I'm not revealing what it was because no, I don't want to be uh, saying that name. But when I found out who my dad was, I started going by his last name, Garrett. Um, although that was never a legal change until, uh, one month before I got married because my future wife, who is my wife now, the only wife I've ever had or ever will have, uh, did not want to be legally the other name. So I legally changed it to Garrett and at the same time had to legally change my name from Nathan to Jared. So that's, uh, that's the names issue. Many of the kids actually went through a couple names here and there. They would change their names, but interestingly, they they all ended up reverting back to their original name that I knew them by, except for one, one person, a dear friend. She had one name, Mariah, when we were growing up. And when she was an adult, she changed her name to something else. And it's a lovely name. And she's a, a divine and wonderful human being with a daughter who is wildly talented and driven. Um, so shout out to you. I will tell you who the, who she is. Shout out to you, Kara, with your great momming and Zoe with your great dancing. And I hope you enjoyed my book. Um, so names were another a couple of other interesting rituals and then practices so um the sunday celebration morphed from uh, gloom and doom uh, satan and jesus want your life and your soul uh they're the same being though and god is some other ethereal thing to very vanilla christian um to the point that we actually started being considering ourselves born again and when i say we that is simply because we were mandated to call ourselves born-again Christians. We were told, uh, as as far as I know, I was probably 12 or 13 when I was told that when somebody asked, I should say we're born-again Christians. I'm not sure why that became the doctrine that we had to follow, but it did. Uh, but as when I was around age 8 or 9, um, I can remember having born-again being kind of this new thing that the cult was going into and going through, and it got to the point where it was um, informing our Sunday celebrations quite a bit. So that every Sunday, you know, we do the usual singing and the the, the chanting and the, uh, the, 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 all the rituals and the incense and the candles and oil and all that stuff. Um, but we would also get to a section where the leader of the, the, the celebration, which typically was the leader of the branch that you happen to be in, would say, I am born again because, and then fill it in with something uh, s- scriptural or uh, personal um, worthiness or growth type thing. So, some examples were, I am born again because I see the world in its true state. Or, I am born again because I follow Jesus. Or, I am born again because I love those around me unconditionally. The leader or director, conductor of the celebration would begin and then we would go in some usual clockwise fashion around the room and each person participating in that celebration would be expected to say, I am born again because and then whatever they could think of. Imagine a bunch of kids, my friends, who had no actual personal spiritual emotional investment in this cult we were being forced to grow up in. Imagine our distress when this began. Like, oh hell, we have to we have to say something that actually makes it look like we care about this, that we believe this terrible crap we're being taught. What on earth do we say? And so there was at the beginning of this much scrambling. But then you could tell that the <laughs> You could tell that the adults didn't care a whole lot because you know I would basically say the same two two or three things I'd cycle through them each time you know I just choose one that I hadn't said recently so one of them was I am born again because I love my brothers and sisters good one simple I am born again because I follow God real vanilla and I am born again because the world has fallen and I want to be good or something very similar to that. Wow. And that was as uh, sincere as I could get. Uh, the other kids would kind of do the exact same thing as me, but just, just say whatever came to mind and hope to not get noticed or reamed. I do remember one time, I think I said the same thing two or three Sundays in a row. One adult, Joanna maybe, she seemed a little more concerned with me than others. And I I think it's because she just absolutely adored my, my mom. Um, she said, Jared, I feel like you're, you're saying the same thing over and over and it just doesn't feel too sincere. And I just looked at her and said, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, And that was that. Um, I didn't say what was on my mind, which was, yeah, it's because this is ridiculous, man. Um, I did ask people every so often, well, what is it we believe and that's when I was told at the age of 12 or 13, oh, we're just a non-denominational Christian sect. Um, that's, that's how they described themselves as the foundation faith of God, uh, starting in around, I don't know, um, the mid 80s. So it got very vanilla and very dull and very boring. And I'm not exactly sure why people were joining it. Uh, but that's your Sunday celebrations and your rituals and your God bless yous. And uh, there were also some other fun little things that the kids were asked to do. The kids were asked to, um, not asked, that seems entirely too generous. The kids were told, often, to behave in certain ways. Uh, We were actually taught to march in lockstep. Left, right, left, right. We were chanted at, left, right, left, right, left, right. We were also giving what looked for all the world like Nazi salutes. Right arm up at a diagonal coached to have straight arms fingers pointed thumb thumb right in with the fingers uh we were made to clean things of course but that's good it actually builds builds a good work ethic and then there was the private school now i'm gonna devote an entire um podcast to or several episodes to dallas um in in all its glory but the, the private school doesn't merit that. The private school merits this and this only. And that is the last six minutes of this this episode. It was started in what, when I was around nine or ten uh, with just the kids who were in Dallas. And the <clears throat> it, it was started solely to make sure that the kids in the cult weren't, weren't being exposed to the evil influences of the world. And so we would stop going to public school and we'd start going to this private school. And um, they called it a private school. All of, it was basically homeschooling. Uh, we were just taught bas- your basic subjects, um, math, English, lit- literature, history, um, and other things uh, by whoever was not out fundraising. And obviously fundraising is an interesting thing. We'll, we'll talk about that in another podcast episode um, about how finances worked in this cult. Um, We were taught the basic subjects by people who didn't necessarily have any kind of qualifications for them beyond the fact that they knew them okay. We got really lucky, though, in that our uh, French teacher, he spoke great French. He was fluent in French. Sadly, not a great teacher. Uh, We had some other great teachers who weren't great at their subjects, but they were very good at teaching. So shout out to Bridget. Man, your love for us, your devotion to trying to get us to learn... Uh, thumbs up. I didn't learn a whole lot, but I still remember um, writing history songs based on Beatles songs. Maybe that's why I don't like the Beatles very much. I don't know. But faith school—it was called faith school, this private school—and it was overall general and normal. And uh, after some time, where they had their, got their finances together, they actually rented a house uh, in Dallas, some distance from where the boys lived. Yes, boys and girls were in segregated housing. Some, not too far from where the boys lived, some a little farther away from where the girls lived. It was on a street called Bowser. I remember that because, Mario, no. I remember that because that's what we called the house, was Bowser. We called the houses by the street names that they were on. Um, And uh, we actually had, it was turned into schoolrooms. It looked like kind of a a house or an office building, but we turned it into school rooms. Several grades, or at least several grouped grades in, in the school. And learned, but the day always began with focus class focus class was their attempt to get us to focus, focus on our personal development. It was um, all about learning Scientology, similar stuff. Again, I didn't know this was Scientology until many years after I left the call. But let me describe some of the activities that we would do. One was the acceptance step. The acceptance step was when they would line us up in chairs. We'd be sitting in these folding chairs that we all sat in for everything we did. and But we would turn and face one other person. So there would be a row of one person face, facing one direction and a row of another person facing another direction. So there you know, 15 or 12 people per side, all each facing each, uh, another person. And the acceptance step was to sit there, looking directly into the eyeballs of our counterpart with zero expression, zero reaction, zero anything, just at calm we were supposed to be accepting so that uh is that's that's what the acceptance step was that was all learn to absolutely school and control your reactions and hopefully your feelings we were also uh for other other steps that we would do they were called steps another step that we would do would be the redirect step where our counterpart sitting up across from us would call us something or give us some sort of terrible insult it's supposed to be sincere sounding and we were supposed to be as sincere as possible and say, thank you, and then say a nice thing. So Mark might say, Jared, you smell like horse crap. And I would say, thank you, Mark. Your perception about smell really is accurate, and I appreciate your honesty. Um, why we did this, I don't know. There was never any reason for it as far as I knew. Uh, and no, now. Today, I, I certainly see the use for it for me to... It trained me and got me started on the whole uh, meditative state where I I would be, you know, one with my feelings and and be able to turn, kind of turn them off in in a way uh, and then turn them on if needed. Another activity that we would do would be emotion acting. So we would be in a semicircle in a room and we'd all be kind of facing each other and then there'd be an empty wall at the one end and we would be told to go up in turn and act things out. So I'd go up and I was okay at this. Um... We were told to whoever was leading the focus, which typically was uh, our, the caretaker of um, the girls or the leader of the whole branch, Lucia, who was a completely insane evil person at the time. I think that she's since toned things down. Uh, we were they would yell happiness or happy and we would have to act happy, sad, angry, frustrated, scared, all the things. We were do we would also do this a change up would be to have a phone book and they would say, Okay, read the phone book out loud, but make yourself sound this way. So, read the phone book, but sound happy or sad. So, phone book. Uh, law Office of... Do it scared. Law Office of... Uh, uh, take it of money and run. Um, and Yeah, yeah. So, uh, what this taught me to do was lie. And that is how I used it, was to lie very effectively to those people. And unfortunately, to other people throughout the much of the early part of my life. So thank you, Rituals of uh, the Foundation Faith of God, for teaching me to lie and making me have to change myself to stop lying. And um, that's kind of the overall rituals of the cult. Uh, One final tidbit of ritual is that uh, the celebrations changed to the point where anybody in the group could actually kind of get up as long as you prearranged it. And I, despite hating the cult, and despite disliking very much the branch that I was in and the woman who ran it and having zero religious fervor whatsoever i was writing poetry and i was trying to write message poetry and so people would actually read my poetry and liked it and so i ended up regularly standing at the front of the sunday celebrations in dallas in one of the, in the building that that we had for this reading my poems my message poems to the gathered group. And one guy after one of those said, Jared, that was beautiful. You moved me to tears. And that's a little bit a part of why I became a writer, because I wanted to have that effect on people. But yep, there was Jared, one of the most angry people you ever did see, at least getting some attention and some uh, kind of validation because he was writing and reading poetry in the cult he hated. And that's all for today. Come back for the next episode. We'll talk a lot more about being a little kid, and being surrounded by little kids, essentially being an orphan uh, in this cult, and some of the things that we would do. Thanks. Talk to you later.